Hey, a quick note before we jump into this episode. Here at Leading Saints, we are trying to do more How I Lead interviews. Now, what's a How I Lead interview? You've probably heard them before. It's where we find everyday leaders around the world who are serving in one capacity or another, maybe an elder scorn president, Relief Society president, the ward mission leader, high counselor, stake presidency counselor, so many different callings of leadership that we have in our faith tradition. And we like to sit down with them one-to-one and just say, how is it that you lead? Give us a few principles, put it into perspective. What's your area like? And these turn into phenomenal resources of best practices. And it's just always fun to hear what the other guy is doing. So if you know somebody who we could interview on the How I Lead segment, regardless of their calling, we would love to connect with them. Go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us the information, maybe get, give them a heads up, and we'd love to reach out to them, connect, and see if we can get them on the Leading Saints podcast for one of our How I Lead segments. Again, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us the information. This is the podcast, the Leading Saints podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham. I welcome you back to another episode. If you're new to Leading Saints, I got to tell you real quick that we're a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through uh, content creation like this podcast. We have articles at at leadingsaints.org. We have a weekly newsletter that goes out with unique content. We've got virtual summits that we put on a couple times a year, and it's just a a wealth of knowledge here. So jump in, and I hope you find a long-term place here. Now, in this episode, I interview Fiona and Terrell Givens. If you're familiar with the Givens, you are you know that this is this is a power couple in our Latter-day Saint community. I appreciate their thinking, their perspective. They are scholars, they are intellectuals. They've written a series of wonderful books together and uh, some books solo as well, but their newest book called All Things New: Rethinking Sin, Salvation, and Everything in Between is a book that I recently read and had the opportunity to sit down with them and discuss some of these uh, concepts with them as they relate to church leadership. And just some really deep, thoughtful perspectives about some basic doctrines that we sometimes take for granted, or we we just uh, assume we understand these things. And Fiona and Terrell give a really unique perspective on some of these things that end up being a great conversation, one that hopefully gets you thinking. They always uh, get me thinking, and they'll say something, and I'll have to stop and think, huh, I've never thought about it that way, or wait, 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 what did you say? Is that how does that fit into everything? So anyways, re- really great discussion. I encourage you to check out their book and uh, hopefully you enjoy this conversation with Fiona and Terrell Givens. Today, I am in uh, Midway, Utah with Terrell and Fiona Givens. How are you two? Doing great, thanks. Yes, very well. Thank nice. you, Coach. Now you are, uh, you've recently uh, have a position with the Maxwell Institute and have come out to Utah here to Join with some some other saints as well, right? Yes. How's it how's it been? That's right. Well, it's been a pretty good adjustment so far, although COVID has made it a rather unnatural transition. But we were in Richmond for over thirty years and had frequent trips to Utah, so we're not entirely strangers to the area. But it's really good to yeah. to be here. Cool. That's great. So, how many books have you two written together now? I think this is our fourth one. This is our fourth. Wow. This is our fourth. What type of marriage counseling follows a book after you write <laughs> Well, no, actually, it's it's the marriage counseling during the book that saves the book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no. But it is. We, um, we're not really compatible collaborationists, would you say we were? I think we end up doing a pretty good job. It's yeah. like, there are lots of fireworks on the way there. Nice. <laughs> well, right. I think writing is one of the hardest things in the world to collaborate on because it is, right, you're investing yourself. It's such a reflection of your 
of your deepest held ideas and convictions. And so to be willing to compromise and negotiate those is a, is a difficult thing. Yes, there is compromise in negotiating on Terrell's part. <laughs> Poor <laughs> man, right. I feel your pain, darling. <laughs> <laughs> so the new book is titled All Things New, Rethinking Sin, Salvation, and Everything in Between. What was the, uh, the, the impetus of this book or, or what question were you hoping to, to answer through this? Well, we've um, traveled quite a bit in the United States and around the world talking to people, well, being asked by um, leaders of congregations and stakes to talk to their people, most of whom are in faith crisis. And as we've traveled, the questions we've received, we felt that this book in particular was necessary. We hear a lot of people calling it the culmination of the other three books. And I, I think to a large extent, it's right. But it's like we're going back to the very beginning, the very beginning of the restoration and the very beginning of the church of Jesus Christ. And, and I do love that idea that we are a restoration church. We're not a reformation church. Mm. And I think we really wanted to tackle that issue, tackle where we had come from, from the fourth century and try and recuperate those things that were lost from the fourth century onwards that were found in early Christianity. And we do feel that the gospel of Jesus Christ is restoring that. So this was our, our, our praise, would you call it our, our hymn? To the restoration? What yeah, kind of celebratory hymn to the restoration. We, I, I think that captures it well to say that this is a culmination. We have a, kind of attacked piecemeal what we see is what we think are historically introduced misconceptions about key doctrinal points. In the past, we've dealt with the nature of God and Christ's role as healer, and we just tried to do a kind of comprehensive uh, re-examination of our entire religious vocabulary much of which we think is still really contaminated by a Protestant inheritance. We forget just how deeply embedded Joseph Smith and other 19th century Mormons were in a Protestant culture. Hmm. And so their language was entirely informed by Protestant conceptions and paradigms. Yeah. And, Can you give an example of that, what that would look like? Or? Uh, sure. Yeah. One, one example we could talk about would be repentance. <laughs> which in its first translation into the Latin Bible, into the Vulgate, was translated as do penance. Mm. And so throughout most of Christian history, the Catholic Church instituted penance as, right, as a sacrament that involved a kind of pain, some kind of a penalty for a sin committed. When, of course, the original term is metanoeo, which means to have a change of heart. And even today, we have connotations of the earlier translation. When we, when we talk about repentance, we, also talk, we often talk about a kind of penalty that we have to pay to show our earnestness, right? That we have to somehow, we make restitution, we, we have to suffer to some extent. Mm-hmm. When that is just really a desecration, I think, of Christ's teaching, which is an invitation to retrain your heart in greater consistency with the values of a Christian life. Yeah. And that's what I appreciate. And we'll, we'll definitely get into repentance and, and sin and those things. But just this idea of, like one quote from the book says, but as I've reflected on this, I've come to realize it isn't that I've learned new things about God, rather that I have unlearned things about God, unhealthy, incorrect, culturally informed principles about God, which have in fact distanced me from God. And, and that's, I think you were quote, quoting a student in that context, but that's an interesting thing because we see the gospel as like a, a venue where or the church is a venue where you can come to learn about God, but sometimes it acts as a venue to unlearn things that we're supposed to learn. No, absolutely. And I think this goes 
along with what Terrell was saying, is the idea of a God that has crept into the scriptural texts, even the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. And again, it's all, it's all about paradigms. People are working within religious and cultural paradigms when they're writing these things. So the idea of God, particularly in the Old Testament, is portrayed as wrathful, vengeful, genocidal, whereas the God of Moses chapter 7 is vulnerable, mm. a weeping God who chose to set his heart upon us. And, um, I, and we're, we're both very much influenced by Julian of Norwich. She was a 15th century English mystic writer who, who just said that wrath and love are true contraries. You can't have both in the same person, especially if that person is divine, because then you would have a schizophrenic God, and that would be rather terrifying. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I, we both really feel that God is either all good or he's not God, or if he's bad or malevolent, then he's not God either. Yeah. So, and we do really do think that this is what the restoration is doing: is bringing back this idea of a God who has, who loves us with an unyielding love, and that love is a primary characteristic, and anything that mitigates that love is not divine and is not of God. Yeah. Would you say so? Yeah, and of course. Every Christian and members of almost every faith community on the planet would say, well, we believe in love and we believe that God is a God of love. But part of what we're trying to track in this book is the way in which the, what we call the theology of love was horribly reconfigured in such a way as to justify all kinds of things in the name of love. Hmm. Crusades. Uh, like, yeah. you know, I mean, the Crusades and and the Spanish Inquisition, and burning at the stake, and all of those kinds of things that have been done in the name of love show that love is a very flexible, malleable concept. And what we are trying to do here is to recuperate a, a theology of love that is consistent both with the first two or three Christian centuries and with Joseph Smith's teachings in this regard. And I think, I think it's worth pointing out that uh, Joseph Smith was never harsher in his criticism than he was when he talked about the influence of the creeds of Christianity. I mean, we all know the famous phrase that the creeds were an abomination, mm -hmm. but we forget that, that he actually canonized a revelation, section 123 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where he talked about the damning hand that riveted the creeds of the fathers who have inherited lies upon the hearts of the children and filled the world with confusion. Wow. That's pretty strong language. Yeah, that, I'd say so. And, and so it seems to me that what he's, to us, that what he's saying is there are all of these subtle ways in which those preconceptions of a Christianity that had gone off the rails have infiltrated our hearts and minds and language. Yeah. And so this book is an attempt to try to rethink how we might kind of clear the detritus of a fallen Christianity and present a clearer view of restoration Hmm. principles. Yeah, and this I really appreciate it because I, I've been doing a lot of study and, and thought about this concept of... Uh, of a disappointed God, where it's almost like in our in our faith tradition and others, it's like, yeah, I, I know I learned at a young age that God loves me. I know he loves me, but he's just perpetually disappointed in me. Mm -hmm. And to me, that like, ah, oh, that like hits me in the heart. Like, you've missed it. Like, and in my opinion, it almost feels like I can't see how grace and disappointment can coexist in a God. No, right? exactly. I think, I think you're exactly right, Kurt. And I think what we're doing, I think what's made it very uncomfortable so for so many of people so many people in our faith tradition, is the fact that we're trying to put these inconsonant words together 
and say that they belong when they don't. And it makes everybody feel really uncomfortable. And, and I, I think that's a problem. I think that's why people are having a good look. Evangelium means good news. And if it's good news and then there's nothing in there to sully it. But as soon as you t- start talking about God being disappointed, then you have effectively created this massive rift between you and God, which God does not want. And so, the, and we've noticed that with a lot of the language that it, it makes us feel less lovable, less worthy. That's another word we've been. And what we are trying to bring to light in this book is that God, anything and everything we could possibly think that is beautiful about God is true. And we both believe that if it's true, it's going to be beautiful. It's not going to feel, make us feel worse about ourselves. Life is hard enough as it is. And if it's beautiful, it's true. And it seems like such a simple cliche, but there's, I do that. How is this making me feel? Does it enlighten my mind? Does it expand my heart? Or does it constrict my mind and harrow my heart? Because one of those is divine and the other one is not. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when another quote from a, from a student that says, I, I was, I was the kind of child who heard, I am a child of God, and instead of taking to heart the message of divine love, trembled at the second verse, help me to understand his words before it grows too late. As if we have this, this God that's after us, right? Right. And, and not only that, like we, we see all of these, you know, grills, these iron doors being shut, hmm. you know, before it grows too late, and then that's shut, and I'm cast out of his presence, and I am, I am no longer with my family. And, and that's very disconcerting for you know, primary children who are raised on the song that, you know, God is love and that families can be together forever. And then they grow up and they learn that actually that's not true. Because if a family member does this, 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 or this, then the family will be divided asunder and there's, Uh you know, no more family together. I was not raised LDS, but I have to say, were I, that would be very disquieting. For me, growing up, and then suddenly, oh my goodness, I'm not going to be with my family forever. Yeah. I think what's a little bit different about this book and our approach in this book is that rather than just kind of tackle these concepts in terms one by one in isolation and rework them, we're trying to suggest that if we just keep in mind how radically different the story is that the Restoration tells, Hmm. then then a whole series of misconceptions fall by the wayside. So, for example, if we would just stop using the word the fall, (laughs) we don't believe in the fall. In 1840, a journalist attended a sermon Joseph Smith gave in Washington, D.C. And in his report, he said the most striking thing he noticed was that Joseph Smith seemed to deny that there was such a thing as a fall. Well, it wasn't a fall. It was an ascent, because we believe that part of the plan from the beginning was that Adam and Eve would would create the doorway for the entry of our spirits into mortality so that we could learn by experience to taste the bitter and learn to prize the sweet and the good. So in that context, how can God be disappointed when part of the plan is for us to err and to learn by our mistakes? And we're going to suffer all kinds of collateral damage along the way, but that's that's the point. Life is supposed to be educative. Yeah. And so if we could understand that that our heavenly parents are the ever faithful tutors dedicated to making sure that we get through the, the process successfully, rather than thinking them of judges 
waiting to evaluate our performance, yeah. then it, it's just the difference between night and day. And this is so exciting because we see all of these themes picked up by the patristic fathers. Essentially, all of the fathers before the fourth century, Greek fathers, I need to stipulate, the, the Latin fathers, we went into punitive atonement theory, which was unfortunate. But with the Greeks, um, we really had this optimistic view of life that, as Terrell said, this was an educative period. We're children growing to adulthood right. under the tutelage of God that was taught so explicitly by Irenaeus right. as well as Origen and others. And, but for me, being a woman, changing the genesis of our narrative is massive because for women, Christian women particularly, although other women have been embroiled in this, with Eve categorized as the one who initiated the fall. Hmm. And she is the one who is to blame. And so, quite frankly, the condition of women in Christianity has been really rather awful and really rather bleak because, you know, Hamlet screamed at his mother, frailty, thy name is woman. But he could have been doing that to Eve, frailty thy name. And, you know, we'd be fine. We men of the world would have been absolutely fine had you not been in the garden. Hmm. You'd have just, you know, so, so for me, it's, it's, it's so emancipating um, yeah. the gospel of Jesus Christ restored because you do, in, in our narration of the story, Eve becomes the heroine of the human family. It's like, you know, Adam is sort of holding back, not so sure that I want to do this, looks a little tricksy. And she goes forward, and and that's extraordinary for me as a single, you know, entity woman, and for all of my my women friends, yeah, and for our daughters, it's so important. I mean, it changes everything. Yeah, that we it allows us into a much more equal and collaborative role with men rather than just you know, yes, exactly. So it sounds like I mean the the general concept of we have such these diverse, unique, dynamic doctrines that sometimes on the on the surface of, of where the language is spoken, these terms like the fall or families can be together forever. With the best intentions, they sort of skew how we perceive these deeper doctrines. Is that a good way to say it? Yeah, absolutely. And part of the problem, I think, derives from the fact that, that we have looked for a common vocabulary right. for the best of reasons, yeah. the best of intentions. You know, we've wanted to build bridges. But the fact of the matter is, if Latter-day Saintism doesn't offer a radically revolutionary new paradigm for understanding God and Christ and human nature, and our, then what was the purpose, right? We could have just tinkered around the edges of just another Protestant sect. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at the statistics, everybody's aware of the fact that the fastest growing religion is the nuns. It's true that the Latter-day Saints are suffering a number of defections, but relative to other faiths, we're actually doing better. They are suffering attrition at a higher rate hmm. than we are. Christianity is in crisis. The Titanic is sinking. And the last thing we should be doing is trying to swim back to the Titanic. And yet, it seems too often that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to insist, no, 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 we're Christian. No, no, we share these beliefs. Yeah. Instead, we should be saying, no, actually, we offer a refreshingly different alternative. And this is what it is. We offer a restoration. Yeah. I love yeah. that word. Yeah, it is. It it's powerful. more and more powerful. Yes, it yeah. really does every time I so say it. what does that look like in our day-to-day practices, Latter-day Saints, whether we're leaders or not, or just attending church, sitting in a Sunday school class or on a Zoom Sunday school class, whatever it is, how can we avoid this, uh, this 
part of our human nature where we want to we want to simplify things so that we yeah. can communicate yeah. it, but we also don't want to skew the the precious doctrines. Well, I I think if doctrines are going to be precious, they're going to be easy easily understood. If it's convoluted, then we need to mm. very look very closely as what to, at what is being taught, and we do feel that changing the vocabulary or reverting the vocabulary to a much clearer understanding and a, a clearer definition in the early centuries helps. I think it empowers us as individuals and as a people to work collaboratively for that end. What we're seeing with traditional Christianity is this, this emphasis on sin, this emphasis of not being worthy, you know, the, the apprehension, yes, that we may be judged and we will inevitably not make it. It affects the way we live our lives. It affects our relationships with our, with our loved ones and with, you know, people around us, you know, people at work with us. Whereas if we have this conception of spirits who lived eternally, that we are consubstantial, that would be Pali P. Pratt's favorite word, consubstantial with divinity, just not as advanced as they are. And that we all were in this meeting, a, a pre-mortal meeting, and we, we either volunteered or said, I, I think this is probably what we do. We would like to be as you are. You mm. are beautiful. You are full of love. We would like to be that. And then suddenly that's empowering because it's, we chose to come. We knew the difficulties that we, I don't believe we knew them exactly individually, right. but we knew yeah. that earth life was going to be extremely yeah. hard. But we also know, and I think we, we, I, sometimes we repeat verses so often that they just become cliche. But Moses 139 is just extraordinary. Yeah. If we look at that and we recognize that this is divinity, that their work and their glory is to bring to pass immortality and, and immortal life of every single human being, then that just, you know, it just strengthens you. It enlightens your mind. It vivifies your heart. And it's like you want to work collaboratively with God. So you then start looking outwards to other people. So you're not so self-centered. The unfortunate thing about all of this virulent vocabulary is that it, it necessarily centers ourselves on ourself, ourselves. What can I do about my sin? What can I do about my worthiness? And so it becomes very constricted. Whereas if we're thinking of, you know, eternal lives as being for everyone and communal, then naturally our heart and our minds go outwards. And both Terrell and I feel that the end, the end result of our, our education here is Zion, yeah. not apocalypse, <laughs> not Armageddon. And I, I think we misread that. You know, we, we hear that the earth shall be consumed with fire. And because we're post 1945, we're all thinking nuclear holocaust. Mm, right. But the, 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 probably the most stunning vital image of the Holy Spirit is fire. Yeah. So if we were to see the earth being consumed by the Holy Spirit, do you see what I mean? It changes everything absolutely dramatically, seismically. And so we are not fearful of what's to come, but we're looking forward to that. I know I'm talking too much, but we've been invited by God to collaborate. And, um, yeah, you know, no, through no, our I think baptismal that's right. covenants. Yeah. I think one thing that's really encouraging in this regard is that I can remember growing up in the church in the 70s, and there was such a focus on the second coming, preparing for the second coming, getting your supply. And, and there was this conception that we Mormons are going to hunker down while the world burns. Oh, yeah, <laughs> right. 
And, and not that and, anybody specifically said that. No, but that was but, the, but that was the, the feeling, feeling yeah. that we had, yeah. right? And that Zion would be this kind of refuge behind castle walls where we were safe. But if you listen to the way the brethren have been talking about Zion in the last decade or so, they are continually invoking the notion of a worldwide Zion that transcends mm. culture and religion, that incorporates the entire human family, all people who are striving to do good. And so I think that as Latter-day Saints, we're much better positioned today than we were in earlier generations to have, as Fiona said, this, this look outward rather than this focus inward that enables us, I think, to be more constructive participants in building this, this global Zion. And we have unique contributions to make in that regard. We, we're not the only ones with contributions, but ours are unique. Yeah. And, you know, you, you referenced, you know, the 70s where it sort of had that feeling. And I'm, I would imagine there's some individuals, obviously, you know, the general uh, message from the brother and whatnot has maybe been more clear or more of a world, like you mentioned, worldwide. But what do you, what do we do when maybe in, within a ward echo chamber, it sort of has, seems like it's, uh, some of these points are, are being seen in that, like there's those misconceptions that are coming up to the surface more likely in, you know, in a, in a certain Sunday school or, or whatnot. Because, you know, you mentioned, you use the word cliche, and it seems like our brain files things away in cliches, you know, when the, our testimonies begin, begin to sound cliche with, I know, and, you know, the, I know the church is true and, you know, these, which are great statements, but they're almost empty in their delivery. Right. And so I'm just, how do we avoid that, uh, you know, on a more local level of, uh, getting, having these misconceptions lead others, a doctrinal knowledge or faith. Does that make sense? <laughs> Maybe yeah. too convoluted, but... No, no, no. Well, it's always a difficult task to just become better informed about our own tradition and our own, and our own belief system, but that's ultimately what it boils down to. I think another, another problem that is relevant here is, is the tribalism hmm. that has just become right endemic in American society. I was conversing with a group of saints from Scotland yesterday by, by Zoom, and they asked, so what's so what's happening in the American church these days, <laughs> uh-huh. right? As they as they look at our political system implode, and I said, well, the most tragic thing that I'm witnessing at the moment is a kind of mirror image of our political factionalism replicating itself in the church, yeah. where we find, as it seems to be never before, these extremely right neo orthodox kind of intransigent fundamentalist. Attitudes on the one hand, and then you've got this kind of rampant, unfettered progressive progressivism on the other, and and we're replicating the rhetoric of the political sphere in our own in our own church. It seems mm. to me. I mean, it's, I'm not online that much, but enough to know that that's happening. And the tragedy is that if you if you study the first couple of Christian centuries, and you ask what was it that Christians were really renowned for in the Roman Empire, and one thing stands out again and again and again. There weren't that many contemporaries who wrote about the Christians, but uh, there were a handful, and they all point to the same thing. They say, you know, the thing about these Christians, they really love each other. (laughs) I mean, there's this incredible intergroup loyalty and devotion to each other, and they call each other brothers and sisters, and they think the whole world are their brothers and sisters. And so they're frequently mocked for that. And so the real shame is that if we were really fully replicating the church that we purport to be restoring, we would be renowned in the world at this moment as this mm. kind of exception to the tribalism that we see everywhere else. Um, and, and, but until we completely eradicate 
racism and classicism and these other kinds of isms in our own communities, then, then we, we have failed in that imperative. Well, we hear President Nelson in particular, you know, speaking about this sort of thing, this, you know, call back to community and, you know, just the idea of you not to be supporting conspiracy theories mm-hmm. on either side Which of the spectrum. Which is a remarkable fact that it's gotten to the stage where they we'll have to say necessary that. to modify the handbook of instructions yeah. to warn against that kind of extreme factionalism. Yeah. And I think I, my feeling is that if we put Zion at the center, and Terrell's right, and it's not as though the early Christians were of the same type. They were diffuse. They were rich. They were poor. They were educated. They were not educated. We have a tendency to form cliques. They didn't. So how was it that they were able, immune from that? I mean, it didn't last forever, of course. But I think the idea is Zion. They mm-hmm. caught it. And the fact of the matter is that everybody would eventually return to the divine family. Well, I, I think that's the key right there. You know, when Section 76 was restored in, what was it, 1832, it was read by early members of the church as a quasi-universalist declaration that Mm. everybody would inherit the kingdom of glory. And there was so much rebellion against that. Parley Pratt had to go and and perform a number of excommunications in church courts in New York. Missionaries in England were instructed to stop teaching Section 76 because Latter-day Saints wanted to be special. They wanted to feel like, no, heaven (laughs) is going to be stratified and there'll be us and there'll be the others. And yet, the more that we recognize that Joseph Smith's vision was that, no, our heavenly parents would bring every child back to the table, then that opens our hearts, I think, to a much more generous vision of our neighbor, of our fellow human being. I think our problem is, and it's not just ours, it's everybody's problem, is that we love to create idols. Hmm. And um, and we have to be very, very careful because we, well, the Catholics have a pope, nobody really pays any attention to him, but we have a prophet, and that's a joke. Is mm. that, you know, we really consider him. And my, my concern is that many of us have, and I left Catholicism because of this, quite frankly, because I could no longer see Christ. Mm. He was obscured primarily by his mother, but also by a myriad of saints. And that's what I loved when I learned about this gospel was that Christ was front and center. But as I've lived within the community for a number of years, I see more comments about following the prophet and I hear more vocabulary, the prophet, the prophet, the prophet. And I think it's occluded our vision and many of us no longer can see Christ. Hmm. And I, I think we do. It's, it's, it's to be expected. We all do that. We all yeah. put up idols, whether we're you know Christian, non-Christian or whatever. But we need to guard against that. I think we think because this is the restored gospel, we don't have to be careful. But I think perhaps because it's the restored gospel, we need to be very, very careful that Christ always remains front and center. And I think that will help yeah. with all of the other things. It would also it would it would help considerably with these new revelations coming out. You know, this idea of we can move. We we are a a living church. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to move. We're going to change. I think a lot of our problem is that we are actually very evangelical. And um, if we've tracked evangelicalism very, very closely, and I think that therein lies our problem. So, for example, most LDS, most saints take the scriptural text literally. Hmm. And that's really unfortunate because we're going to get ourselves in so much trouble if we think that God really is capable of massacring innocent Egyptian children. 
and then try and validate that or then talk about that with the God of love, with his expansive love. So I think that's been a problem in Sunday yeah. school classes is this inability to see the scriptures really as more of a literary text rather than as factual. Yeah. And you have uh, a, a great quote by Brigham Young where he talks about this, right? Yes, that that yeah. the Bible's full of good angels, bad angels, good people, bad people, right? And and this and is Satan, in, I think he throws yeah, in yeah, there. <laughs> right, exactly. And it's interesting because in our you think of our typical dialogue maybe in a Sunday school class and sort of the the pawns of our discussion are, well, this apostle said this, this scripture says this, and therefore there's my proof. It's there it is in black and white and the thinking's done, right? Where mm-hmm. these doctrines and concepts, there's such a wrestle with them or there, there's more that can be found as we, we sit and, and, uh, and see this, what we this can is learn a, more. This is a problem that, that all Christians have faced going back to the foundation of the church and that many still face today, which is how do you deal with either discordant scriptures that seem at odds with each other or scriptures that seem to violate what we believe to be true of the nature of God? And it turns out that Origen in the second century was already proposing a kind of litmus test. And it was the same one that John uh, John Wesley used, the same mm-hmm. one that C.S. Lewis invoked. All three of them said essentially the same thing. They said, if you read anything in the scripture or interpret anything in the scripture to be contrary to what you know to be true of the goodness and worthiness of God, then you're reading it wrong or it's in error. And C.S. Lewis said, if something that I know to be true of God's goodness and love comes into conflict with something I'm reading in scriptures, I'm going to go with the goodness and love of God. Mm, interesting. And so I think it's clear. I mean, Joseph Smith was so emphatic on this point, right? I mean, a dozen times we're told in the Book of Mormon that plain and precious things were taken out, other things were put in. Joseph said, many of the things in scripture do not accord with the revelations of the Holy Ghost to me. And so I think that we need to impute more authority and purity to those latter-day revelations that redefine God for us, hmm. like the book of Moses that says, no, this is the God that we recognize and worship, the God who weeps with us, who suffers with us in our pain, whose greatest sadness we read in Moses 7 is not because we're not dishonoring him, right. but because we're mistreating each other. Yeah, I mean, what a remarkable kind of just destruction of this notion of a sovereign regal authority figure and its replacement by a father yeah, who hates to see his children at war. This reminds me a few months ago, I was reading in Jacob and I just sort of got to the point where I sat back and I'm just like, Jacob, I'm just not, I'm just not feeling you right now. (laughs) Like, I mean, I think we, you know, we can sit in the same Sunday school class right now, but just the the tone and the way you're coming across, I'm just not, you know, that goodness of God, I wasn't finding it. Right. And, but then I had this overwhelm of sort of guilt, like, Hey, you know, he made it past the the editorial staff of the Book of Mormon. Like, if it's in there, like, you shouldn't critique it. But I think it's it's healthy to step back and say, yeah, like, I don't see, I probably wouldn't talk like Jacob talked, even though we're yeah, talking about yeah. the same gospel. He's got a different method and, and no, maybe that's, there's that's some limitations. so important. That's why Fiona often quotes Brigham Young, who said, if the Book of Mormon were translated today, it would be translated in an entirely different way than it was hmm. for in an 1830s audience. Yeah. And so, you know, the Lord tells us again and again that he speaks to us in our own language, according to our own right preparedness and readiness to accept his word. What I love about our, our scriptural text is the fact that, yes, you will see, definitely see that 19th century paradigm, that idea that, you know, God is sovereign, that we are vassals, it'll be there, that we need to be punished, that we are undeserving of God's love. It's very 19th century, it's very Puritan. But on the other hand, what 
So I love this about the living scriptures, because then you will come across these extraordinary, breathtaking things that I don't think the 19th century reader would even notice. But because our minds are different, our paradigms are changing, we will notice. So I don't know how many times I read Moses 7 before it really occurred to me what was being stated about God. Hmm. The fact that, you know, he wept. And Enoch, obviously, his paradigm was really ruffled yeah. because he says, how, how is it possible? Yeah. Wait a minute, I'm freaking out. You are God and you are weeping. You have tear ducts. Yeah, What's you do? going on And here? I don't associate <laughs> weeping with God. So can you please explain this to me? And so God does. But it's lovely to see those in the Restoration texts yeah. that we are moving to. Yeah, and if we aren't startled every now and then by what we're reading in Scripture, we're not paying close enough attention. <laughs> true. Yeah, Very that, true. Yeah, that should never expire, right? <laughs> so I'm just thinking about the the leaders out there thinking like, oh, I, got, I need some certainty here that I can anchor into as I'm guiding these, uh, you know, the or, the local organization of the church. It, it kind of feels... Uh, you know, if you're telling me we should, you know, really question the the tone or how the scriptures are read and, and you know, what, what do we, how do we reconcile that? Or what would you say to a leader who's maybe uncomfortable about that direction? Okay. I would start off by pointing to, to the first chapter of Nephi and go to the well, first book of Nephi, chapter 13. And this is really important because this is where we are having a kind of global vision and interpretation of what's taking place in the latter days. And an angel is describing for Nephi explicating what he's seen in this vision of futurity. And at one point in verse 32, he provides a diagnosis that we think could be such a key to reevaluating how we think about sin and guilt and culpability and kindred concepts. Because the angel tells Nephi that because of the loss of the plain and precious things, the world is in a, an awful state of woundedness. Hmm. Now, even if you read in the modern version, which adjusts that slightly to say an, a state of awful blindness, what do woundedness and blindness have in common? In both cases, we're not responsible for the woundedness. Yeah. It wasn't our fault. And that's what the angel is telling Nephi. He's saying, look, the nature, I'm reading between the lines, the nature of God has been so deformed. The principles of the gospels have been so completely mangled that people are going to incur all kinds of emotional and spiritual wounds. Psychological. And psychological mm. traumas as a result of how they understand themselves, their place in the universe, their relationship to God. And so the, the angel promises Nephi, the Lord won't suffer them to remain in that condition. Why? Well, the restoration will come about, new scripture will come about, a new understanding of God will come about. So I think as leaders, we need to be more attuned to the fact that we are all traumatized to greater or lesser degrees. We inherit traumas. We experience them at the hands of inept parents, as we so often were, or of cruel classmates or peers or false things that we're hearing in Sunday school class. And so if we can begin from that perspective of empathy and compassion and understanding that I think the angel was trying to enjoin in Nephi and his successors, that would be a good starting place. Yeah. Anything you'd add to that, Fiona? No? Well, I, I suppose if I, I'm trying to think, if I were in, in a position, I, would, I think I would keep coming back to the love of God because we really don't believe that God loves us, most of us, not unyieldingly, not absolutely. I mean, He will love, we, he will love us, they will love us if, if. Yeah. And I think we need to, if we were able to delete if 
from our vocabulary and just keep restating that God loves us absolutely. Like the father of the prodigal son. Right, I exactly. That, yes, and that's, that's it's, yeah, that, that is, that really is. Actually, keep re- retelling the story of the prodigal son and, and, you know, that the father is waiting for him. You know, he's, you know, I, who is it? Justin Kinsrew. We love his song yeah, yeah. about the prodigal son. You know, he's, wait, I don't care where you've been, just come home. If we were able to generate within our people's hearts and minds that this is the God we are worshiping, I think so many other things would fall. Because so when they're reading um, scripture and they come across a particularly malevolent God in the scriptural text, they'll have something. Does this, does this gel with the God of the restoration, this absolute God of Enoch, or does it not? And then we have to decide. Because we can't, we can't keep carrying both. It's weighing too much on our hearts and minds. And then we do what Brigham did. It's okay, okay, this does not, this is not worthy of the God I know exists who loves me with an absolute love, who also loved these people with an absolute love. So is he really capable of destroying his own children? And I think once we start entertaining those ideas and putting those in, then things sort of yeah. naturally fall into place. Yeah. And I think, it's easy for people to say, well, the Book of Mormon came from the Restoration, so shouldn't that God be overwhelmingly there? Which, I mean, in a lot of places it is, but should it be consistently clear in each verse? No, it can't be, because the Book of Mormon of the 19th century was speaking to a 19th century Puritan hmm. sensibility. And what, what the Book of Mormon ended up being was a bridge. So people hmm. who were thinking of moving from their traditions into the new tradition They'd have to have a vocabulary with which they were familiar. Okay. They would have to have, you know, ideas of God with which they were familiar. And you do have them in the Book of Mormon. But the fact of the matter is, you also have the great visions of the tree of life. And those are quite extraordinary because as ancient Hebrews understood, the tree of life was a representation of Heavenly Mother. And it is, for me, it's very interesting as we see sort of the resurgence of Heavenly Mother in our rhetoric and our, in our ideas that for me, the Book of Mormon is a chalice that holds that, that she was completely obfuscated in the biblical text by King Josiah's reforms, interestingly enough. But I just love the idea that God knows and he will speak when his people are ready. And I think the Book of Mormon does that beautifully. It spoke to 19th century sensibilities, but it's also speaking to 21st century sensibilities. Yeah, and, and let me, if I may, just read one passage from George Q. Cannon, because I think it's one of the most profoundly important things ever said about Revelation, whether that revelation is to us, to prophets, or to the authors of Scripture. And he's speaking here as a member of the First Presidency, and and I wish every Latter-day Saint would take this to heart. He said, the revelation we may get, imperfect at times, because of our fallen condition, and because of our failure to comprehend the nature of it, comes from God. Man is but the medium, the instrument, the conduit through which it flows. We believe in revelation. It may come dim. It may come indistinct. It may come sometimes with a degree of vagueness we do not like. Why? Because of our imperfection. Because we are not prepared to receive it as it comes in its purity and its fullness from God. He is not to blame for this. Huh. Yeah, that's helpful. So, yeah. you know, I, I think the single <laughs> most common error that we make as Latter-day Saints is to begin any statement with the phrase, 
why did God X or why couldn't God Z? Uh Because in, in almost all of those cases, the answer is, well, because he's bound by our agency, right? He can't just impose an understanding that we're not prepared to receive. Yeah. And I think that's really important. We really do need to dash to pieces this sovereign God, this king. And of course, we understand why, you know, God was portrayed as a sovereign because all leaders, you know, were portrayed as sovereigns or kings or rulers. But once that is shattered, which I think it's really important, we will understand that it's difficult for us to understand divine speech, but God will never give up trying to talk to us. So I think if we are able to unclutter our minds and understand that that God is our father, he's not sovereign, he really wants Zion. And I, for me, I love that verse where we are promised that Christ shall come with Zion to earth to embrace the Zion here, and this will be his home. So those sort of things, you know, this idea of, I, I think it's a perfect divine democracy, really, I think really helps in that regard. Yeah. To be more patient with ourselves and to be more patient with our leaders. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate this, that, you know, this, that quote and your remarks, because, you know, going, as we go to the Book of Mormon to find Christ and to find the true nature of God, there's different voices and, you know, uh, perspectives and ways that things are phrased that are imperfect. And it's almost like, yeah, maybe God could have like laid it out clearly black and white there, but the fact that there is more nuance there causes us to engage with it and maybe seek God on a deeper level rather than just finding him right at the surface. Right. And these people are writing from their own experiences. So if we look at the Book of Mormon as a whole, who edited it? I mean, we we get it from whom? Who was the last scribe? It was Mormon. Uh And what was he? He was a general (laughs) in a war of genocide. And I've met two or three generals in my life. And I can tell you they are- They're not nuanced people. They're not nuanced people. (laughs) Very black and very white. And they've never edited any of your books. No, (laughs) (laughs) they wouldn't want to. It's just too much fluidity. Uh So so we're going to see that in the Book of Mormon. We're going to see this very black and white narrative. He is the editor. So you have the voices of other people- but the primary voice in the Book of Mormon is his. Yeah. And he is engaged in a war of genocide. That's going to change the sensibility of his mind and also of the text that he uses and how he edits. I, I, just, I just think the parable of the treasure in the field oh, that's beautiful. is relevant yeah. here yeah, as well from Matthew, is it 15? That um, whether you're thinking about the church and there's a treasure in the midst of the church, but we have to take the whole field, right? Yeah. Old rubber boots and license plates and garbage. and <laughs> But there's a treasure there. And I think the same is true of the scriptures. I think that we have to, that's why we have to search. And every, every now and then you get these moments of just, right, just brilliant light that breaks through. I love that moment in Christ's visit to the Nephites when he says, come unto me and repent that I may heal you. Because suddenly now we're at the other end of the Book of Mormon, and we have this perfect kind of bookend Hmm. that there's a wounded world, and then Christ comes that he may heal us. And he's not here talking about physical maladies, right? He's talking about change your hearts and minds that I can heal you. Uh, He doesn't use the word forgive, because it seems to me that what we're told there as well as in the Book of Luke is that sin is just one of many forms of woundedness that we suffer. Yeah, and I love this... uh you know, the concept of woundedness, I, I, sometimes I was reading think, does it really talk about wounded that, woundedness that much in the Book of Mormon? And sure enough, it, there it is, right? There it is. Um, and 
Because oftentimes in our religious culture, especially with repentance, it's easy to see sin as like you've taken an action that caused a wound rather than, wow, you are wounded and therefore That's you sin, exactly, right? Exactly, so help right. us unpack this idea, especially, I mean, as as leaders, I remember as a bishop, sort of, you know, the same person kept coming back and back and back and you're thinking, just stop this, you know, what what's the problem here? So help us unpack this idea of woundedness. Well, it's extraordinary because there is so much literature now being produced on trauma hmm. and Bessel van der Falk says that, you know, we usually associate trauma with returning veterans but he says it's in our homes, it's everywhere, it's all around us. We are all wounded. And I think once the the move from sin to trauma is made, that what we have in common as humanity is that we're all wounded. It could be genetic woundedness. Let's see, psychopathy, sociopathy, there are all these pathies yeah. that, you know, come through generations. So when you're seeing, you know, God will curse the children until the third and fourth generation, well, well, that's really mean. And what have they done to you? But if you see that as woundedness and as trauma being carried through the generations, yeah. then yes, absolutely. And I think the, the trauma studies really started happening when people, psychiatrists were interviewing third generation, the third generation of Holocaust survivors. And their duty was to remember, remember and never forget. But they couldn't. It was too much trauma for them to carry. They yeah. couldn't do that anymore. So I think that's what really put us into trauma studies. So I think paradigms are shifting. So we're seeing that. And so when we look at everybody, so in Brian Stevenson's magnificent book, Just Mercy, he goes back through all of the prisoners he's defending on Capitol Row Camp, and yeah, yeah, on, on death row uh, who are awaiting capital punishment. And he traces their lives. And at the very beginning, in their young years, there's trauma, there is woundedness. And it just you know, just piles up and piles up until, you know, behavior is no longer acceptable or cannot be is, is, is threatening. But I think once we shift our paradigm from sin to woundedness, see, God was saying that. We have it in our scriptures. It's so wonderful. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, God is talking about the results of, of having eaten of the tree of knowledge. And he says, they have become as one of us, knowing good and evil, experiencing it. We use the Hebraic language. So one, we know that it's an ascent. Then Eve uses exact same language in her Ode to Joy in Moses 5.11. Had we not eaten of the fruit, we never should have known and we never should have experienced good and evil. Exactly the same language. And then we go to Moses 6 and God redefines evil as bitter it's something you ingest. It's something that may be poisonous. It's something that is harmful. And it, once we change that category from sin to something that is harmful, that is good, and Christ wants to heal you of that, then suddenly the whole paradigm shifts mm. to a, a, you know, a much more optimistic, you know, that Christ and God are attempting to heal us. They understand that we have been wounded. And I, yeah, I would just I'd clarify, we're not saying that sin doesn't exist. Right. We can't right. right. Yes. We certainly can. Yeah. <laughs> but what I think what we're trying to say is that the way that we approach it and think about it and classify it has a very real day-to-day -day impact on yeah. how we treat ourselves and how we treat others. And I think one of the best examples that Fiona has given before is that if someone were to say, oh, do you see that person over there? Well, they're a sinner. They did it so-and-so. Then that creates a distance. And yeah. alienation. But if you were to say, do you see that person there? They've suffered such woundedness in their life. 
then that makes us want to minister and yeah. to assist and to heal. And so it draws us rather than repels us. So language language matters. It yeah. makes a difference. And especially in the context of like a more tactical context, like being a bishop, when you when an individual comes in and it's all about that sin and what they did rather than you know, a lot of people, it's easy to start there and focus on the behavior and stopping that, but to step back and say, well, let's search deeper. Where's Why the woundedness here yeah, that, yeah. that caused this, which doesn't remove accountability from that individual, but gives you a place of actually turning to the savior and offering him exactly. to step into that wound rather than just, just fix this thing and make it go away. Right. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Anything else as far as the sin, repentance, woundedness that we haven't touched on that may be well, there are about 15 other terms that we've redefined in the book, but we'll, right. we'll, <laughs> well, we'll leave those for <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and just another time. like even the concept of you talk about for the Hebrews, atonement was the right of healing and right being R-I-T-E. You know, like that's, the atonement isn't this, uh, I don't know how I how it's traditionally classified, but just seeing it as a right, like a, a process that the Savior is healing us rather than fixing all these mistakes that just have God rolling his eyes that we can't believe he did. We yeah. did right? yeah, and, and I think, oh, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, there's a little bit of mystery concerning the root KPR of atonement mm -hmm. in Hebrew language. And many scholars have long thought that it, it means to cover. It comes from a root mm -hmm. meaning to cover. Like a wound. But, but more recent scholarship has suggested, no, it better in, uh, definition would actually be to heal. Yes. And so it is, in fact, very possible that the very concept of atonement in Hebrew thought and ritual was a healing ritual. I think what's also interesting is that um, we really deviated from early Christian thought as to atonement. We always associate atonement with a cross, mm. and that's not where it is. The atonement is resurrection, mm. making us at one, bringing us one together. And I just love the earlier descriptions of the Eucharist. It was called the bread of immortality. The idea was that once you started eating the bread of the Eucharist, resurrection started within you. So what we were all aiming for was resurrection, but I do think we get stuck on the cross mm. and then that resurrection is mitigated. So then, then we do Christ a disservice because he can heal us from some wounds, can save us from some sins, but not all of them, in which case he's completely failed mm. as the savior and the healer of the world. And so for me, that for me personally, that's been very helpful is to take the crucifixion. So for the early church fathers, it was enunciation. No, it's actually incarnation. Enunciation was important too, but the incarnation, God becoming man and the resurrection. So God rescuing us from death. And I think there is this lovely quote. Yeah. Take time to find out. Okay. Everything. Yeah. So this is Irenaeus. For Christ was to redeem man who had been dragged into slavery and was held by death in order that death might be slain by man and man should go forth from the bondage of death. So it was the bondage of death rather than sin. Death was what prevented us from returning to our heavenly, our heavenly parents. And then, then we, I, I do love the Eastern Orthodox thinkers. One of my favorite is Nikolai Badayev. He wrote in the mid-20th century, got in trouble by the communist government for everything. But I love this because he says, no soul will be saved in isolation. All must be saved together or not be saved at all. So that's, and it refers to Christ's atonement. He either atones for everyone or no one. Hmm. So this idea of Zion again, that he, he is seeing us as individuals in a community 
And um, that's rich when we see ourselves in a community because there's so much we can do in and a community. And it's so lovely how the Book of Mormon replicates that that whole kind of movement from the one to the many, right? Mm-hmm. Lehi himself, mm-hmm. his family, and then all of his posterity, Enos himself, his the Nephites, and then the Lamanites. So there's this continual movement that is expansive and atonement hasn't been achieved until it encompasses everyone. Yeah. And I appreciate, you know, that we get stuck on the cross and I see that in the, in our own personal repentance process, we get stuck in the suffering, right? right? We think, yes, you know, Christ suffered, this hurts, it's supposed to hurt. And I can't believe I'd done this. And that's where the shame enters, right? But, right. but instead get focused on the the miracle, the, the resurrection, the healing, Right. And there's so much redemption there. It's right. beautiful. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise we get stuck in our sin. We can't move beyond it because even though forgiveness might be granted, we can't move. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to move ourselves out of shame. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible. Well, shame and guilt are both selfish. We, we're trying to shift right. to talking more about remorse. Yeah, Remorse is other directed. Mm-hmm. I'm so, sorry yeah. for the pain I caused you, not right. because I disappointed mm-hmm. myself. Yeah, yeah. So we're thinking that if we, and this is, we're talking about the American church. I'm not sure that this afflicts the church in other countries, but the American church is very much like the American body politic. It's really focused on the individual and almost so much so that the individual is seen over and apart from community. Hmm. And it's in a community in which we are going to be healed and saved and in which we are going to see the Christ when he returns. So then, as individuals, we have a responsibility to others in that community. Well, this, this, and this is one place where we where we can't make compromises, where we have to push back, I think, against certain cultural trends typical of the younger generations. You know, I taught religion for many years at the University of Richmond, and I'd often start class by saying, how many of you in here are religious? And no, or one hand would go up. How many of you are spiritual? Every hand goes up, <laughs> right, in, in the class. But the difference is, as Fiona said, spirituality is is usually about the self. What is my standing before God? How do, do I feel the spirit? How am I experiencing mm. my religion? And so people who say, well, I just don't really believe in institutional religion, what they're really saying is, no, I want to go and indulge my own feelings and needs. Whereas religion, the root, of course, is ligari, to connect or to be bound to others. And so I think we need to be more forthright and vigorous in defending the necessity and the role of an institutional church that provides a forum and a context and a medium for service in a larger context and for working as as part of a community toward a larger good. Yeah. And it's extraordinary. I think our church does so incredibly well. And I, I think this this is a really a fabulous place for community building and encouraging us to help members in the community. And that's a step towards Zion building. It's it's helping us to look outside of ourselves to other people and pull them into the community about whatever things we can do. So for, for Terrell and myself, the baptismal covenants are absolutely key. And again, you know, I've been a member of this church for 30 years, and it's only quite recently that I've realized how magnificent they are, because what they are doing is helping us create community. You know, uh, when we covenant, I wish we'd do it publicly or orally. We think we did in the early church. Mm. But this idea of, I will carry your burdens. Mm-hmm. I will mourn with you when you mourn. I will comfort you when you stand in need of comfort. That's extraordinary. And we were rushing to get the Christ who heals out. But it was after that that I realized that each member of the Godhead is there to ratify or sanctify. So 
the God who carries our burdens all the way through his life into Gethsemane and onto Golgotha is God the Christ. The God who mourns with us when we mourn is God the Father. And the God who comforts us when we stand in need of comfort is um, God the Holy Spirit. And it suddenly, you're not a little person anymore. It's like you've been invited to collaborate in healing the world with the Godhead. I mean, that's extraordinary. I'm from, suddenly I feel special. <laughs> it's like I can do something. I yeah. can actually do something to make the world a better place, to help people's lives, and to collaborate with the Godhead. For me, that changed all sorts of paradigms. The least thing you do, giving a phone, you know, a friend a phone call or, you know, there's little promptings by those little thoughts that we get, you know, and it seems so trivial. But I swear, the person on the other end of the phone or the under, other end of the letter, that means, I don't know, it's just extraordinary how much good we can bring into the world. Yeah. yeah. In our invitation. You know, I love that, you know, this concept of community. And we talked about woundedness before that. And I maybe want to wrap up our conversation with the application of these two concepts, because it seems to me that this woundedness is so important to recognize because that is what brings us together as a community. When we all show up and say, oh, I'm wounded. Oh, look, you're wounded. Like, let's sit in solitude in that woundedness and see how we can both turn to Christ and receive healing and and then perpetuate that healing through our service, right? It becomes difficult when it's, you know, the likelihood of vulnerability in maybe a church setting is is lower, where maybe as the bishop, I don't feel like I can, I'm not, I almost feel like I'm not supposed to show my woundedness. You know, yeah, I had some issues or there's, my marriage isn't going great, but others don't need to know about that. Is there any advice you'd give is how do we perpetuate this culture of, of woundedness and so that we can then become a, a stronger community in Zion? I think all paradigm shifts should happen slowly. And and we are in a paradigm shift. So perhaps a community would not actually be able to, oh my goodness, the bishop just said he has problems with his wife. What is coming to the world? Does God not support us? Or him? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're still there. We're in that transition. But I think as we listen and we find more ways of of establishing or talking about our woundedness with other people, it will grow and then it will be a thing that everybody will rejoice and be healed by. What are your thoughts, darling? Well, I would give a more immediate and direct and practical solution or start to a solution. You know, I think one of the most remarkable and beautiful practices in the Latter-day Saint faith is fast and testimony meeting. Mm. It's also one of the most abused and uh, sometimes <laughs> I, what do you mean? I don't off mean. the rails and out of control practices. Yeah, but I think one of the problems is the lack of authenticity in the way we bear testimony. And I think mm. we were misdirected many years ago when we were given templates and formats for exactly how you know mm. the five things. The you five mentioned. thing yeah. exactly, mm. which is terrible. That's not how testimony works. It's not how it operates in Scripture. And so I'd look to my two favorite examples in Scripture, which are Nephi when he's asked if he understands certain things, and he says, "Well." I know that God loves his children, but I don't know the meaning of all things. Yeah. There's a testimony. Right. Or the blind man who says, no, I don't, I don't know anything about this person except I was blind and now I see. So I think there can be something very beautiful and very tender about a testimony that is honest, that doesn't profess knowledge if we don't have knowledge, that attests to what we do know, to what we can safely affirm, that can express our hopes and our longings as well as our certainties. And I think that is one way that we can move in the direction of a community that is more trusting of each other because we've shown our honesty in public. We have a very dear friend. This is a number of years ago, and she was living in Salt Lake, and she, her ward was a very, very conservative ward. And I think her bishop had asked her if she would consider bearing her testimony that day. And anyway, she did. But 
everything was, I don't know. I don't have a testimony of this. I don't know that. And it was very authentic, but essentially people would have said, well, that's not really a testimony because you just put everything in the negative. So she fled. No, you know, but after that, but she did, but she did attest to what she did know. Remember that when I read. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I can't remember that part. When we read the scriptures as a family, I know that we yes, feel better that light yes, comes into our home yes, and into our hearts. Yeah. And so she just gave these little glimpses of principles that she did believe. And then she fled because she was so worried about what the reaction would be of the ward members. And she said all during the week, she got emails and phone calls from ward members who would say, I. I'm not sure I understood what you were saying, but I felt the spirit. So, you know, she she was saying, she was speaking language with which Terrell and I are very comfortable, but obviously the congregation was not comfortable because they'd never heard anybody get up and say, I'm not sure that Jesus is the Christ. You know, that just wasn't part of the, the vocabulary, the language of testimony to which they were accustomed. But they felt the spirit in her words and they reached out. They didn't know what to say. They didn't know how to say it, but they wanted her to know that they loved her and that they were very grateful for what she said. And I I think, you know, we're seeing more and more of that, you know, people saying, I'm not entirely sure, but I believe. And people are responding to that. People will respond to authenticity and we're very good judges of what is authentic and what is not. Yeah. Well, have we? Uh, obviously, people need to check out the book uh, again. It's all things new: rethinking sin, salvation, and everything in between. Anything we haven't missed, or quote, or topic you want to make sure we hit before we wrap up? Or no, I think we covered it all. Yeah. Oh, yes, we Good. have. Good. Thank you. Any uh, obviously, you can find this on Amazon and other church bookstores and things like that. Any any other advice you give to people if they want to jump into this this content? Well, if you have fallen in love, as so many have. With my wife's most beautiful voice. Uh, yes, you right. You should know that she has done an audio version of it, so that's available on Audible. Then, then, <laughs> and, and you should do this professionally, right? Just forget writing and just be that the audible I voice. I think I'd lose the gift if I started <laughs> selling. What is that thing? Selling, selling my gifts. Gifts for money. For money. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, last question I have for you is: uh, you know, I know you've written many books and led in many ways in in, in your own right, but uh, from this project, how is this? book, this project helped you become a deeper disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, for me, I think what it's it's borne testimony to me of is that this is the Restoration Church, because we are bringing back, Joseph particularly, brought back things that have been lost to the world. He wouldn't have been able to read Greek. And if he could have read Greek, he wouldn't have had access to the Patristic Fathers. He just wouldn't have. But when I was doing research for The Christ Who Heals, I was stunned by how closely Joseph sounded like the Patristic Fathers. In some cases, it was verbatim. And so for me, that it solidifies my testimony of Christ, that he is the healer of the world, and that it doesn't matter what religious persuasion we are, we are children of God, and that Christ's healing is for all of humanity. And I think we're the only church now saying that. If we're not saying that, we have every opportunity and we have real reason to pronounce unequivocally that Jesus is the Christ. C.S. Lewis is reputed to have said, we read to know that we are not alone. And the greatest benefit that I think I have personally experienced in writing these books with Fiona has been to 
try to traverse a whole field of other voices, what Joseph Smith called holy men and women you know not of, and to find that one immerses oneself in the poets and mystics and patristic fathers of the past, that one hears again and again a voice that is familiar and that makes one feel not so alone. <clears throat> and it's been our experience meeting with countless members of the church. They do feel alone. They feel they're the only ones who experience the gospel in quite that way or who have this particular relationship to God or to the church. And what I've come to discover is that there is a whole community of invisible, the invisible church that is out there that we have tried to give people a glimpse into and have experienced ourselves, and it's quite beautiful. That concludes my interview with Terrell and Fiona Givens. A big shout out to them. So grateful that they welcomed me into their home and allow me to ask them some uh, questions about their new book, All Things New. Definitely check it out. And I want to give a shout out to the people over at uh, Faith Matters. If you're not familiar with Faith Matters, they're one of the handful of uh, nonprofit third-party organizations like Leading Saints who has a mission and a focus to helping build the kingdom of God and create content and resources that are so helpful. Uh, and you'll probably hear more about uh, Faith Matters in the future as we interview more of the, the authors that they publish. And, you know, they have, you know, people like Thomas McConkie and Patrick Mason. And there's so many individuals that are part of that team that are really creating some in-depth, dynamic content for the Latter-day Saint community. So definitely check them out at faithmatters.org. And remember, if you know someone who'd be a great fit for the How I Lead segment, go to leadingsaints.org contact and submit your suggestion. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.